I'm in like a competitive month long wordle thing and it's only two days and I'm already obsessively tracking where I am in the rankings. I'm going to UK Games Expo tomorrow. Oh, are you now? It's a board game convention thing. It's running all weekend, but I'm only going for the day in Birmingham. Hmm. Which, is it bad that, like, I love board games. I'm kind of more excited about the sandwiches I'm bringing for the drive than I am the, the board game convention. I like a sandwich. And I'm not that keen on board games. So I'm, I'm on your side here. What yeah, kind of sandwich? Cool. I've really been fancying, like, one of those, like, really, really stuffed Italian-y panini things. So mm. I've, I've made some focaccia and I've got, like, pesto and salami and ham and mozzarella and rocket and sun-dried tomatoes. And nice. it's going to be good. That does sound nice. I'm sure the con will also be fun, but like, I'm really looking yeah. forward to eating that sandwich at seven o'clock in the morning on a drive to Birmingham. I haven't watched this Good Omens 2 title sequence, so let's have a look. I watched it and was like, oh, that's a cool title sequence. That looks cool. And then I saw the many Twitter threads breaking down every single detail in the title sequence. And like, I'm worried we're just not going to be detailed enough when we cover Good Omens. So people have been doing frame by frame analyses, have they? It's quite similar, isn't it? Yeah, it's just got different like background details yeah. and stuff from the last one. The music's the same, or like versions of the same. Well, you'll be shocked to know I don't have any discourse from that one quick watch, but uh... <laughs> it has contributed to my excitement for Good Omen season two. Yeah, no, absolutely. I felt very happy hearing the music again already. Like his Radio Times one where they picked up all of the Easter eggs, so I'll link to that. That's probably more sensible than linking to the unhinged Twitter threads, but also I just highly recommend Good Omens Twitter. It's, it's unhinged, I support it. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so back in at the end of 2019, uh, I got to go see Neil Gaiman do this thing called Playing in the Dark at the um, Barbican. It was like with the BBC Symphony Orchestra and it was pieces he picked and readings around them and stuff. And they the orchestra played the Good Omens theme tune. And then David Tennant came out and read the bit where Aziraphale and Crowley are drunk in the bookshop from Good Omens. And uh, it was it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Oh, um, and the other thing we've got on our little Pratchett news, Pratchett news, is the cover reveal for Tiffany yes. Aikens' Guide to Being Wicked, which I have seen. I'll get up again for a little. It's very pretty. I've linked to it in the show notes with some more information about it. I'm really excited for this. Yeah, me too, actually. Um, especially because I've been very interested in her as a character for the first time, like as a yeah, as an entity. Yeah, we're in full like Tiffany headspace yeah. right now. Should be good. Oh, they're going to have an audiobook as well, I see. Nice. Good, yeah. So we get um, two new Pratchett books in October because A Stroke of the Pen's coming out as well. That's correct, yeah. October Which actually is a new Pratchett fun. book. Yeah. Yes. Or a well, very old Pratchett, Pratchett book. book, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, a very old Pratchett book. Coffee. I left my coffee in the other room. That's upsetting. Never mind. Well, do you, in that case, uh, do you want to go get your coffee and then... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wouldn't usually take me this long to notice. You're clearly being very engaging. <laughs> I'm like a shiny thing in a parakeet's cage. <laughs> Sorry, you're the parakeet in that situation. <laughs> That's right. fine. I identify with that today. <laughs> in that case, would you like to get your coffee and then would you like to make a podcast? Yeah, let's make a podcast and a coffee. Hello and welcome to The Truth Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we're usually reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one assignment in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And we're slightly off route from the major canon as this is part one of our discussion of the science of Discworld 2, The Globe. Ooh, minor canon. Just a little boom. You wouldn't use it to try and take down the Spanish Armada. No, 
absolutely. Well, uh, note on spoilers before we crack on. We are a spoiler light podcast. Um, heavy spoilers for the science of Discworld 2, uh, but we are going to avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series past the hatful of Sky, the bit of the main canon we're up to. And of course, we are saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Hopefully not accidentally ending civilization as we do so. But you never know. But you never know. Uh, if you're going to try and end civilization, use a bigger cannon. <laughs> callback. Uh, so we have callbacks, follow up. Sure. <laughs> Do we have any of that? A uh, couple of little bits. Um, Neris on Patreon, and I can't fully remember the context. I think we were just talking about crying and screaming. Okay, um, yeah, that sounds right. Suggested <laughs> that we should... Screaming, crying, throwing up, you know. <laughs> Screaming, crying, perfect storm. I can make all the tables turn. Suggested that we bring, and I have not looked up how to pronounce this, Elvavrelet. I'm sorry now. Uh, introducing that to our neighbourhood. So this is Swedish for the 11 Raw. It's a student tradition where students at universities and colleges at a certain time every night in student residential areas, normally 10 or 11 o'clock, um, open their windows, go out onto balconies or rooftops and scream to relieve stress. I've seen a video of that. <laughs> There's a few names where it's the Delphi Roar uh, in Lund, the Flogster Roar in Uppsala, uh, the Lapcar Cry after the neighbourhood Lapcar Spurgett in Stockholm, uh, the Ten Cry Tuesday Scream or Anxiety Scream. And um, that sounds so much better than fucking clapping at eight o'clock on a Thursday. Yeah. Um, I hope that non-students are allowed to join in and we'll have to go on a little road trip one day. Uppsala. uh, I think we should just start doing it. See the the problems we were talking about before with the people calling the police. I think might still apply even if we scream in Swedish. Maybe I should do a Twitter campaign first. Yes, yeah. Like that's I think how that's the a good yeah. use of our energy. So let's do that. Yeah, cool. Okay, so we're going to try and make that happen, and not really connect connected to anything. But uh, Space Alex, our, our friendly space friend on mm-hmm. Reddit, our friend space friend. Our friendly space friend, uh, because we were talking about the word crepuscular. Um, there's been the first ever photography of sun rays on Mars. Curiosity rover got photos of sun rays, also known as crepuscular rays, hence the very oh. ten- tenuous link. So I've uh, linked to a thing in the show notes. I um, So you can look at the pictures, and that delights me. So yeah, not super relevant. I have uh, a missive from uh, Luxar on Tumblr. He got back to us when we were like, when did we start all the stupid bits we do at the top of the podcast? And they have uh, tracked it for us, helpfully. Amazing. And so I did leave in things like the helicopters and the loincloths. That was in episode two. The first proper helicopter and loincloth watch was in episode seven. That's when you'd gotten to me. Um, <laughs> episode five, I got mad about the journey. <laughs> uh, and by episode six, I was saying journey. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> and there's something about Pagloib, which sounds familiar, but I don't remember it. <laughs> oh, yes, the Somerset Pagloibs. Oh, that's it. <laughs> Excellent. As opposed so, to the glob, which is what you do when you're trying to cut down on your ease, but talk about this book. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was nothing. Francis, do you want to introduce this book to us? This book is the sequel to The Science of Discworld. It was published in 2002, which is the same year as Nightwatch. Ah. I don't know whether we should put like our general thoughts about the book up front or at the yeah. end or what. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, we can start with general yeah. thoughts. Didn't, not enjoying this one, mate. <laughs> that, so I'm enjoying this one a lot more than I did the first Science of Discord book. And it surprises me that you're not. I think we just clearly have slightly different brains when it comes to 
reading science? What, what is it you're not enjoying about it? The kind of science bits are very rambling and repetitive and often quite poorly explained compared to the last one. So like the the the, the themes they're trying to tie through, like the, the whole tribal versus barbarian is referenced a lot before it's even explained. There's the build a human kit, which I think is pretty sprinkled in without much yeah without much gravity to i feel like they've tried to tie everything together with like as you'd put it like a grand overarching thesis and they really missed the mark a bit on it and like there's yeah (laughs) no that's fair i respect that there's there's just there's a lot of subjective stuff written as objective stuff and considering like in their own words um they said like there's a point we should make very firmly for this and many other theories. Things happen all over the place and apparently in some confusion. And afterwards, mankind goes and chops it all up into stories. And like they're very aware of this, but I see them doing it quite a lot throughout, not in a very self-aware way. And I, yeah, <laughs> I've got a few examples. I'm not sure how far we want to go into it. Oh, go for it. The one I really, the one that kind of set me off being annoyed, and I was probably more critical after this point than I would have been was when they were talking about like abusing children being like necessary for civilization because yeah no that did not a lot of the stuff they wrote about uh tribal things and brutality as well felt like maybe it's not racist but it's not like well i feel like tribal wasn't being used in that way but no. it really wasn't explained what way they were using it um until yeah, a bit later race- so the tribal yeah. seems to mean order and barbarian seems to mean chaos and there are these two kind of and i can see what they're getting at and i can see they know what they're talking about and i just don't think they've conveyed it very well um and like all the stuff about monotheism and polytheism and they're talking as if like this is what happens in monotheistic societies and this is what happens in polytheistic societies and they're very none of it's very solid at all i just feel like with the last book even if i didn't grasp a lot of it the bits i grasped i felt like i was like solidly learning something whereas this i feel like i'm having to be it it feels like i'm reading a pop science book more so than the last one and in that i mean i don't trust anything i'm reading yeah and that's annoying and frustrating and i'd rather just be reading fucking sapiens or something who did it well yeah, no i <laughs> I totally see that. I mean, I think for me, like I struggled so much with the last book because it was like information overload and I think I was trying to glom on to almost too much of it. Mm. Whereas this, because it's all presented so theoretically, I feel like I can like, oh, I've sort of picked up some, it does feel a lot more pop science-y, but I'm used to reading a lot of pop science and not necessarily good stuff. And I've only recently really started thinking about that a lot more critically. Thank you, Michael Hobbs and your podcast, If Books Could Kill. Yeah, I'm wondering how much I would have hated this if I hadn't listened to that already. And that worries me slightly. Um, I I mean, big recommendation for listeners, though. Listen to If Books Could Kill. It's a great podcast. It's very good to uh, brush up on your your critical thinking, for sure. Um, But yeah, it's like, it's just, did you not find it really fucking repetitive as well and not like in a... I did find it, I, I'm not going to lie, I probably did skim read some of the sciencey bits when I did the set. So like I've talked on the podcast before, I usually read the whole book in mm-hmm. the week off between podcasts and then I go through and do my post-it read. Um, this time I only read the half that we're talking about today uh, because even with it being not as information heavy as the first science of discord book it is still a lot to take in i just couldn't read it all in like the weekend i'd allowed it to do it mm. and i found myself skim reading the sciencey stuff when i was doing my second read on the basis that like i'm not going to talk about everything in this so yeah. i'm not going to try and take every single fact in 
yeah, it's there's loads of stuff I did find interesting, and the the Pratchett bits made me laugh out loud a few times. Uh, you know me, I love a love a wizard, love a rinse wind. Um, but I think yeah, for for me, it also helped that like I just talked so much about stories and human nature when we did Hatful of Sky. Like literally, there is a paragraph in this that is my talking point from the last like proper episode we did. Mm. So I think my brain was just very like, yeah, I want to read about stories and how humans deal with stories. So I was thinking about it more in that like. Yeah. Like ephemeral sense than I was thinking about it as like, I'm going to learn some science. Yeah. But even that, did you not find it was a bit just. But yeah, I, I agree that it was like a really interesting subject put in a really dull way. I, I really think maybe I just, I got so pissed off by a couple of points in it that I just started reading it with like a much mean eye than I would usually. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Whereas I think I'm a lot nicer about it than I might have been because I'm so caught yeah. up in the idea of narrative and creativity and how that develops and makes people mm. uh, that I was willing to probably overlook some of its flaws. Yeah. But it did send me off on some really interesting like rabbit holes and I enjoyed looking up a bunch of the stuff. And I, yeah, I don't know. It could have done with a really good edit. And I think it would have been a really good book. And I just think maybe it didn't get enough of that. Yeah, and obviously they're both really like clever, accomplished scientists, and I think maybe there there seems there is a thing with accomplished, well-rounded scientists that they tend to think they're a little more well-rounded than they are, and when they're writing about specialities that aren't theirs, authoritatively, that can be a bit of a problem. Yeah, um, I don't know if that's the case here, and obviously I'm not an expert, but. Yeah, I don't know. Also, obviously, it's 20 years out of date and there's a lot of language in it you'd prefer not to be, but that's just what comes with reading any science book that's 20 out of, 20 years out of date or more. Yeah. Not to like dismiss it out of hand, but it's just like yeah. a, we've covered this language before. I think the fact that this came out around the time of Nightwatch, which means it's not far away from around the time of We Free Men, is mm. quite interesting. Like, I think, mm. have it, especially with the bit of Discord we've just covered, we're not, whereas the last one, was around last continent time and we've moved quite far past the last continent Mm. this is catching up to where we are yeah and i think having a bit of context for the books that terry pratchett wrote afterwards i think i can maybe see some seeds here and because i'm thinking about it in that direction i'm enjoying it more yeah that's a good point yeah i wonder how you'll feel about the second half because i'm assuming you haven't read the second half yet either no i haven't no that's it's a lot to read all at once so yeah well let's talk about what happened in this one I think we get a bit more Shakespeare in the next half, so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Literature, uh, fine, whatever. <laughs> honestly, the main reason I was looking forward to this is Shakespeare. Everyone loves I, a I, weird fictional de- depiction of Shakespeare. I know what I likes. So yes, this week, what do we have? In this first section, which in case I haven't mentioned yet, goes up to chapter 16. I'll probably have tweeted that by the time this episode comes out. Could be. Um, the trees are wizards oh. and paintballs are flying. Suddenly, the world gets cold. Uh, Rincewind gets a message in a bottle. The wizards are on Ramwald, and so are the elves. Ponder and the librarian put their heads together, but Hex can't get the wizards out alive. The elves are singing. Ponder gives a presentation. The librarian's not happy, but they're going to use Elspace to get to the faculty. Rincewind's forced to tag along as they plan to deal with the elves. Through Elspace they go, and they land in a library. There's alchemic watsits and wizardly bits about, and a high glamour quotient for a world without magic. A man in black enters, but the librarian takes him out. Hex speaks through a crystal ball and tells them to get out of Walsingham's house. 
Hex suggests that the librarian has a Spanish shave and our ragtag trio of misplaced misfits find the faculty in a tavern. Rincewind suggests that the elves are just another extinction event, but the wizards want to fix things. The wizards attempt to explain things to their new friend D. The elves arrived millions of years ago and the faculty plan to go back armed with iron. The librarian shows Rincewind some Shakespeare, curiously absent from this version of the round world. With Hex and the librarian left behind, everyone... Uh, well, everything vanishes as they step into a circle. The wizards charge on elvish singing and a furious queen confronts Rincewind, but the luggage interrupts. Rincewind arrives to tell Rincewind to hold his breath. The circle appears, but Dee's time looks a bit too savage. Rincewind attempts conversation, but the people present have done nothing but eat mussels for thousands of years. Ridcully lights a pipe and causes a stir, but the luggage and the librarian, who's randomly appeared, calm things down. Hex speaks through the tree that fire came from. Stopping elves stop progress, so the faculty return to stop themselves. Paradoxes won't be a problem because everything's uncertain. The wizards interrupt themselves with secrets and doppelgangers gang up on each other when the magic circle arrives. Back safely in Dee's library, things are getting cold as a lady turns up. Oh. Very good. Very nice. So, helicopters and loincloths. Uh, I think magic circles are doing a lot of work as helicopters. Oh, all They're right. round and doing transport. Yep, no, that's and, fine. And uh, the librarian's fetching dress. Of course. As a loincloth. Um, Poor librarian. got irrelevant elephants all over the shop. We have, we have, we have. I um, enjoy greatly that in the science bits they crammed in their own irrelevant elephant. Me too, although I did look it up and it doesn't seem like many scientists actually buy that one. Uh, the, the one about elephants uh, having uh, like ancestry being a bit more aquatic than we might have thought because of the, the tissue between the lungs. Oh yeah, yeah. About, um, yeah. There's basically it's not really been discussed since 2002, <laughs> and it was dismissed by a few scientists at the time. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, I I think I'm probably on the side. But I like that. But it's, it's a charming thought, and I have to, you know, you can see elephants using their trunks as snorkels, and it is of course delightful. Um, and snorkeling elephants would make a great band name. Yeah, uh, but anyway, I did find an irrelevant elephant. Um, mm -hmm. This is from the. Uh, elephant voices website um the 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 one we've talked about before where where people go in and uh put it's like crowdsourced from scientists mm -hmm. kind of thing uh so this is about vocal learning um in 2005 elephants were added to the shortlist of mammals uh which includes humans some marine animals and bats that are capable of vocal learning in other words are able to imitate sounds um, they reported a young female African elephant, one of the Savo orphans, a female named Malaika, who had learned to imitate the sounds of distant trucks, and a captive male African elephant named Calimero, who had been able to imitate the chirping sounds of the Asian elephants with whom he was raised. Oh. Um, and some Asian elephants who could uh, whistle by blowing air through their trunks. And mm. yeah, so elephants can learn to imitate noises, which is cool and good. That is a delight. Uh, right, quotes. Quotes. Would you like to go first? Sure thing. The deeply magical and interminably ancient volumes in the library of UU strained the fabric of Elle's face like a baby elephant on a worn-out trampoline, leaving it so <laughs> thin that the library was a potent and easy portal. Beautiful. I think that's a lovely simile. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Uh, mine is a single line from Hex. Once you know what the answer is, the process of calculation can be seriously reduced. Which was a very stop and think moment for everyone. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> not wrong. 
Yep, yep. <laughs> I do also, because it was only a line, have a cheeky secondary quote, which was just a little bit from one of the science bits. Today is innocence of rigorous thinking, the new ages. Yes. Which felt mean. Yeah. <laughs> but as I've known many a yogurt weaver in my time. I know, I know. But um, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely on their side for these rants. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm cherry picking the smugness I wish to align myself with, put it that way. <laughs> I respect that. Oh dear. So, 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 where are we starting with some characters? I thought we'd start with Rid Cully, everyone's favourite. Everyone's favourite shirtless fighting wizard. Who doesn't love a shirtless fighting wizard? Well, if it was anyone but Rid Cully, I think he'd be less popular. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so he's all about team spirit, hence the paintball game, which does just Pratchett have a thing about offices doing paintball? Because this is... I think he heard about it and thought it was very, very stupid. I'm assuming he never had to do office paintball and is one sort of proper, well, it's more than one proper office job. I doubt I doubt the Bucks Free Press was doing paintball weekends. Maybe the nuclear power plant. Maybe. But I, I know, I, I get the idea that he's... he's like talk to people about these corporate retreats and has just got to be in his bonnet about how stupid they are. And I like that. <laughs> I've never known anyone who has had to go to like corporate paintball. If we have any listeners who've had to do corporate paintball, please tell us. I want to know what it's like. Or even like voluntary corporate paintball. I'd like to hear about just any anything where you've got to shoot your colleagues for the paintball. Yeah, I mean, I've done paintball, but it yeah. wasn't corporate. Or other retreats, I guess. I've never really been in a big enough company for this to be a thing. Yeah, any kind of weird office retreat, team building exercise you've had to do, possibly with ballistics, let us know. Yeah. Um, Send us an albatross. Rid, Rid Kelly is alpha male, I quite like, is our... Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, we, we're seeing Rid Kelly from a new viewpoint. Going back to some of your previously trodden boards, uh, we have the orangutan librarian who sees Rid Kelly as an alpha librarian. And uh, that's interesting. Yeah that hierarchy does exist i mean we know that like he's technically subordinate to red yes. but it's interesting that he actually does see it that way mm-hmm. um i also very much enjoy red cully enjoying the magicless universe and just shouting the number eight in various <laughs> configurations while Rincewind hides under a table <laughs> yeah uh, oh, no, also another, another beautiful turn of phrase from Pratchett. Rid Cully had the rude health of the bear and only marginally better interpersonal skills. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I'm not saying like my mental health is occasionally shaking, but I literally watched like a three minute video of a bear eating a watermelon earlier. It was amazing. Is that a sign of bad mental health? That seems like a normal and good thing to do. There were many of other things I could have done with those three minutes, Francine, that weren't watching a bear eat a watermelon. I think that if you're ever in the situation where you've got the opportunity to watch a bear eat a watermelon for three minutes and you think to yourself, there are better things I could do with these three minutes, then you need to worry about your mental health, Joanna. You did the right thing. Don't worry. I'd already been on TikTok for like 20 minutes, Francine. (laughs) (laughs) I already excused you. Don't worry. So I quite enjoyed the secrets Rid Cully tells himself, which is that when you were small, you had a one-eyed toy rabbit called Mr. Big Pram. On your sixth birthday, your brother hit you on the head with a model boat. And when you were 12, to the words jolly lolly, ring a bell. I don't want to know. It's an, it's an ominous rhyming phrase, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the other end of the wizardly spectrum, we have <laughs> Win- Rincewind. 
Yeah, oh yes, the two genders, Ridcully and Rincewind. I think so, right? Yeah, the two wizard genders. Rincewind of seven titles. Uh, the Professor of Cruel and Unusual Geography, Chair of Experimental Stupidity, Reader in Slewed Dynamics, Fretwork Teacher, Chair for the Public Misunderstanding of Magic, Professor of Virtual Anthropology, and Lecturer in Approximate Accuracy. Now, do you think the line about um, fretwork is a reference I'm missing? If you are, I'm missing it too. I try. That, that, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, listeners, this this one, that the title, the, the job title of fretwork, uh, was apparently the result of a curse some 1,200 years ago by a dying arch-chancellor, which sounded very much like, may you always teach fretwork. I'm assuming fretwork is meant to sound like something, yeah. and I can't work out what it's meant to sound, sound Me like. Me neither. Um, answers on a bucket of coal, please, listeners. Yes. Transported by albatross. <laughs> Quite a strong albatross. <laughs> um, yeah. Rincewind being Rincewindish, I, as always, enjoy his ability to get the get the uh, the essence of a new civilization he meets, he, even if he finds them incredibly boring. Uh, we get Ponder offering to set up a hex code that will do all of Rincewind's work for him. Sub, <laughs> wait, wait, return. Yeah, it's all a bit close to uh, reality now, isn't it? <laughs> I felt personally attacked. <laughs> Oh yeah, I um, think he's yeah. There's uh, Rincewind is as he always is. Um, just having just a lovely Rincewind, time. Just Rincewind, I think, time. just very very amusingly getting us from danger to danger, uh, and gets called a noddle pate, which love a bit of imitation Tudor insulting. Well, I don't think it's imita- imitation. Um, is noddle pate, a thing from a. a, a I don't know. I couldn't find it right away. Noddle and pate are both slang words for head. Right. So he's a head In context, it sounds like he's calling him a knobhead. Yeah, that works. I've seen a couple of fantasy, I think, books call someone noddle pates. And I don't know whether they picked up that word from here, but I don't think so. I just think it's not in any digitized books and I need to look through some old books to find it. And I didn't do that today because I thought that would be boring. Yeah, I respect that. Yeah. Uh, so Ponder, who's never boring. <laughs> yeah, poor Ponder. poor Ponder. He doesn't have time to be boring. He's very, very busy. Well, he's only got three titles. Uh, reader yeah, but of, they, they have responsibilities attached. Reader of Invisible Writings, Head of Inadvisably Applied Magic, and Prayer Lecture, which is uh, a thing from Oxford and Cambridge University. And it's the fellow who gives out people's degrees during graduation ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Because... Oxford and Cambridge need a special fucking word for that. Yeah, of course they do, yeah. Um, Ponder is the kind of wizard, it turns out, who will write in their diary about being frightened of elves chasing them through the woods. And I remembered as I was reading this exchange between him and Rincewind, actually, it's the same one where he then threatens to replace Rincewind's job uh, mm-hmm. with a line of code, uh, that they had some similarly mismatched conversations in The Last Hero, and I quite like the dynamic. Just yeah, very, very different wizards who nonetheless are stampled over. That's a stampede trample by yeah. uh, Red Cully. <laughs> <laughs> bless, bless Ponder trying to do his PowerPoint though. Oh God. <laughs> I'm getting heckled. I've got 12 more slides. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I've done a flow chart. It's on fire. <laughs> I support I support Ponder's right to do a flowchart. 
Yeah, I also very much sympathise with Rincewin, though. Yeah, no, that's fair. I also he, he turns around to Rincewin and said, I'd always thought of you as rather stupid. Yeah, unkind. Yeah. Considering, again, again Rincewin, going back to a previous rant, Rincewin saved their ass a few times in The Last Hero. Quite a few. Was, was the only person he realised a few, was the only one paying attention on a few occasions. So, you know, Ponder, wind your fucking neck in. Rincewin is deservedly cowardly, but he's not stupid. No. Um, and then the librarian. Yes, always uh, love a bit of extra librarian. Who they threaten with shaving so that people and telling people he's a Spaniard. Well, which, they didn't just threaten; they did. I think. Yeah, they put him in a dress and a ruff. <laughs> um, which I'm assuming is partly a reference to the whole Hartley Paul thing, which I must have talked about on the podcast before. Hanging the French monkey. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that sounds like a terrible innuendo, but it's not. <laughs> You're right, darling. Do you want to? Uh, do you want to hang, hang the French, French monkey? monkey? <laughs> <laughs> do you mean? Do I want to engage in such ridiculous homophobia that I end up accidentally killing an animal in a cruel way? Xenophobia, not homophobia. Sorry, I was going to say probably both. <laughs> they probably were homophobic, but I don't think they were being homophobic to the monkey, Francine. Listen to Anna. It's Pride Month. <laughs> no one be homophobic to any French monkeys while they're in Hartlepool. <laughs> That's what the stone wall was all about. <laughs> Happy Pride, kids. Uh, Hex, gay icon. Yeah, I like his new eyeball. Yeah, hundred percent. That's fine. Fine tubing. <laughs> okay, so Hex gets an actual voice because we've got the crystal balls and stuff. What do you imagine? Like Hex sounds like. Like who would you cast? Ooh, good question. I wasn't really imagining any type of voice. Um, Nowadays, I suppose I'd give him Siri's voice. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Um, or, you know, going Red Dwarf. Yeah, that did occur to me as well. It just sounds you, like Holly. Uh, a bit of me went Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, that'd be good, actually. Yeah, because that's quite yeah. nice, softly spoken. I feel like the soft spoken bit is it's more fun. It's more ominous. Mm, yeah. Or like maybe like a kind of Star Warsy droid thing like um, Alan Tudyk doing i'm gonna lose you there but yeah c3po oh yeah no i know that one yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> not the beep beep one but the not the one. beep beep one the shiny tall one did they hate each other in real life i heard they did i don't think so okay good because <laughs> that would be awkward for them i can't remember who was in rtdt wasn't it warwick? no warwick davis was one of the ewoks yeah eh. anyway uh not a star wars podcast no, um, I love the like. Oh, the the librarians like sniffing at books to get the feel of them. Love that for him. I do highly support the librarians book sniffing. The fact that he swears a lot as he's screaming. We're learning a little bit more about orangutan language. Yes. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, some of our round world people. Mm. Uh, John D is one that's always fascinated me a little bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. I must, I must have read about him before because there's no way he hasn't turned up in stuff like Bill Bryson's book. But I, I don't really remember him until I looked him up today. The first bit I read about John D was in. Um, I know we talked about horrible histories, Terry Deary before, but he also did a little six book series, um, that was like all set in Tudor times, and it was about like one family in a northern village who had a manor house, and they went off and met Shakespeare and eventually okay. the Queen and also and John D's in that and quite an okay. interesting character so that was when i first heard of him 
Um, but yeah, so he was court astrologer to Mary Tudor, um, got imprisoned for being a magician uh, mm. and reading nasty horoscopes, got let out and then became astrologer for Queen Elizabeth I. Sadly, eventually died in poverty after James took the throne because, you know. I swear to God, like fucking 90% of the scientists you read about and again, that Bill Bryson book, Brief History yeah. of Everything, whatever, die in poverty. It's awful. It's awful. Um, he had one of the largest libraries in England at the time, so I'm glad that the librarian found him. Yes. The big book collector. That's a good thing to find. Oh, and he, he lived also- in Mortlake. Yes. Hence the why they're in Mortlake in the book. Yeah. Cool. Um, he also worked in mathematical navigation and laid the groundwork for a lot of um, English exploratory voyages. Um, yeah, like he was big on colonising. Yes, yeah, no. Obviously not great, but quite cool that he did a lot of navigational stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those difficult areas of history where you hate the result, love the process. <laughs> uh, so we worked with a scryer who was definitely a fraud, this guy Edward Kelly. The devil who, you say. Yeah. <laughs> Who helped him communicate with angels and they oh, that's formed nice. this uh, angelic magic system based on <laughs> their communications with the uh-huh. angels. And at one point, the angels uh, dictated that they should wife swap for an evening. Oh, is and that they so? And they did, <laughs> according to Dee's diaries. Him and Ponda clearly have similarly unwise diary habits. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Oh, mate, that's terrible. Um, I just had his glyph up as my interesting little extra bit. And I can't uh, really talk about that in audio format. <laughs> he, um, he had his own, have you got that? Is, is He made his own little hieroglyphic. Oh, I didn't find that one, no. Monus Hieroglyphia. Hieroglyphica. That is his book about it, apparently. Yeah, nice. It also, it's theorised, and obviously there's no way to really prove this, that he inspired the character of Prospero in The Tempest and also oh. Dr. Faustus in Marlowe's play. But yeah, you can read about him. He's a very interesting bloke, if clearly a bit gullible in specific areas, like when it comes to angels. Please talk about Shakespeare. Shakespeare. This is me just cramming in an extra little bit. I liked really, but I want to talk about the Shakespeare quote they're using and the actual context for it. So okay. do you mind if I read a bit of Shakespeare? No, please do. Yeah. So this is from Hamlet. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy the air, look you, this bray o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appeareth no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, no, nor woman neither. The way you're smiling, you seem to say so. He's depressed as fuck. His point is like, yeah, I know theoretically all this stuff is beautiful, but like, it's all kind of shit and I don't like it. Huh. That and is, yeah, see for it, depression. It so reads like totally different when you read it in the context to how it's referenced in the book. Yeah. Um, do we know why 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 he's de- obviously you know why, why Hamlet's he- depressed? Yeah, yeah. At this point, is this after the the, I mean, uh, the murder? <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. Th- this is in a conversation mm-hmm. with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So this is uh before all of the murders, okay, okay, but it yeah, is yeah. after like yeah. his uncle killed his dad and then married his mum. So okay, yeah, got it. Like yeah. that's kind of the whole vibe of Hamlet. Is like he's depressed. Yes, yes. That the yeah uh, the the suicidal bit with the to be or not to be right. Yeah, 
Yeah, that is everyone a question. seems to like uh, forget that. <laughs> yeah, they think of it as this like noble Shakespeare speech. Just like yeah. no, he, he wants to die. Yeah, the uh, the chappy we uh, both think is fit does it very well. Andrew Scott. Yeah, yeah, his version of it is. Um, if you watch the full play, it was National Theatre Live. I can't remember if it's still like on YouTube or something. It's amazing. Okay. Uh, the David Tennant version is really good as well. You can get that one on DVD. That was a Royal Shakespeare Company one. Connected. What's the chops from Fleabag? It's going to be. Doing some national theatre thing that's showing at the cinema soon. I think they're rescreening Fleabag, like the original, because it was originally like an hour long monologue. Oh, is that what it is? Okay, yeah. cool, cool, cool. So it's the I've got the script for it somewhere. Let's keep um, an eye out for it and go see it. Yeah, it started as an hour long monologue before it was a TV show. Mm. Um, which I've seen it before. I didn't see it in the cinema. Yeah. I watched it on National Theatre Live. It's it's good. Mm. It's really weird watching it like. I think when I saw them do it on National Theatre Live, it was they did a whole bunch of things during lockdown. They put stuff out for free. Oh, yeah. Um, I had just finished watching the second series, so it's it's a very weird context watching that, like, when you've just seen it. I'm kind of curious to mm. see what it's like if you watch it when you haven't recently watched the show. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. Um, anyway. so who's, who's Peter and I in Uh Well, do you have handy your copy of the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes? Yep. Is it within reach? Yes. Does it have on it the names of the people who originally wrote it? Oh, yes. Peter <laughs> and Iona Opie. Iona and Peter Opie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's mentioned in this book, um, they went around like doing tons of research, collecting children's songs and games all over the world and finding out, like trying to find the origins of them and how they grew, uh, which I just think is really cool. Obviously, um, we've talked about the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes as being a really great thing to look at for nursery rhyme origins. Um, they've written a few other books on the topic as well, children's games and stories, um, fairy tales, um, all collected from researching with children. And if you go to, I've linked in the show notes, the OP archive, you uh, can actually uh. look at basically, you kind of want to have an idea of what you're looking for, but you can search by things like date and you can search by location uh. and you can find pretty much everything they collected. Well, I um, say that's so if a you good wanna, find. Well, then, if you want to lose an afternoon, and I have a look do. at the Opie archive. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're heroes to me now. Excellent. Um, although I don't think even they found the origins of that weird hand clapping rhyme about Elvis Presley. It would be very difficult for them to, I imagine. No. Um, and then, quick location: uh, L space slash phase space. Yeah, so I've learned a lot about face space. See, I enjoyed that bit. That was great. I really like the face space stuff because L space is really great for explaining what face space is. Mm -hmm. I think they did a really good. Yeah, I think they did a really good job of explaining face space when I tried to teach myself that when we first talked about L space, and I didn't get it at all. Really, as I think was blindingly obvious when I tried to explain it on the podcast, um, and I finally got. I think I finally got a grasp on it. So they did a great job with that. Yeah. I should have put that at the front as well. Compliment sandwich or whatever. <laughs> Would have been a big sandwich, but still. <laughs> I don't have a lot of incredible, like, thoughtful things to say about L-Space and Face Space. I just enjoy seeing L-Space from the inside because we don't get to do that often in the books. Mm. There is um, never enough books, uh, never enough shelf space. Oh, do you know what I did? I meant to, um, I meant to go further, was share some of the quotes from the but they all seemed like motivational posters to me from kindle if you highlight something you can share it as an image yeah i'll send you a couple i think i might like uh make them into more 
detailed motivational posters. Like there is never enough bookshelf space and like never opens up into some nebula, you know? Yeah. Brains are much easier to pull apart than uh, galaxies. Yeah. Like, come on, you can do it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Little bits we liked. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Uh, So Qualia. Uh, what was it? Quale, I think, was the singular. Yeah. For this one. Um, is the but I'm study... still going to pronounce it quail. Yeah, it's fine. In the study of consciousness, there is a technical term for what perception feels like. A figment that our minds paint onto their model of the universe in a way in the ways that an artist adds pigment to a portrait. Uh, and I'd never really heard of this before, but I find it quite interesting. So it's it, in, interesting instances of subjective experience so the redness of red is a very commonly cited one uh, as the wikipedia puts it it's what it is like to taste a specific a specific apple this particular apple now which i just really like as a sentence yeah <laughs> so such qualia paint the world in vivid colors so that we can respond more quickly to it and in particular respond to signs of danger food possible sexual partners etc um which, yeah, is how they're brought up in the book. But it's just a really interesting concept that, I, like, obviously we've all heard of the stuff around it, but I'd, I'd never heard of this term in particular. So, yes. How about you, Joanna? You've got something uh, equally non-understandable, I would say. Yeah, speaking of a lack of context, there's a joke in it about um, all the potential books and how you'd have to take out the books in L-Space when you're trying to figure out the number of potential books that are just nonsensical and say things like cabbage, patronomic, forgotten, prohibit, hostile quintessence. Yeah. Um, and there's a footnote saying some Joycean scholars would be quite offended because Finnegan's Wake would be taken out. I've never really tried to read Finnegan's Wake. I'd heard of it as this famous, yeah. impossible to read text. Yeah. Um, I did find a website I've linked to in the show notes that has the full text with a shit ton of annotations. Oh, okay. They don't help. Like oh. they don't make it, they don't oh, no. make, it make sense, but you, it does tell you what a lot of the words mean. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to see if I can read an expert except from Finnegan's Wake. What if she be in flags or flitters, reeky rags or Sunday ecoses with a mint of mines or beggar a pennyweight? Ara, sure, we all love little Annie Ruiny, or we mean to say love little Annie Rieny, when under her umbrella, mid piddle, mid puddle, she ninny goes, nanny goes, nancing by. Yo, Brontalone slaps, yo snores. Upon Ben Heather and Seeple eyes out too, the crannock head on him, caster of his reasons, peer yuthner in yonder mist, woof, his clay feet swarded in yerdegrass, stick up stark where he last fell on him. By the mund of the magazine wall, where our Maggie seen all with her sister and shawl. That's like a mix between Canterbury Tales and TikTok. With a bit of Irish thrown in yeah. for good measure. <laughs> also, saying someone's nancing past sounds like a hate crime. <laughs> right, but Ninigo's Nanigo's nancing yeah, by. <laughs> it's not a hate crime if I say it, Francine. It's Pride Month. I think I shan't read that book, but thank you. Uh, I do highly recommend looking at the annotated version just because some of the context, again, it doesn't really add context, but it's a fun, hey, look at all these cool dialectical words and where they came from. Like there's a random sentence long Japanese word made up of eight different Japanese concepts in one bit. Love that. Drop, drop, drop us a link in the, uh, in the show notes. I will do. And then something else I liked, it's not a leitmotif, but the paragraph that gets used to introduce the elves over and over again, mm-hmm. um, which I should have found the page for because... This book has really thin pages with tiny page numbers. 
Oh, yeah? In heat of the night, magic moved on silent feet. One mm. horizon was red with the setting sun. This world went around a central star. The elves did not know this. If they had, it would not have bothered them. And it's the same bit that gets used at the beginning of all these chapters where they confront elves. And there's something of a like leitmotif to it. Like this is the elf music, mm. especially because it ends with uh, they began to sing. Yes, although the, it, the book opens with that, almost with that line, doesn't it? Ma- ma- magic moved on silence, Pete. Uh, yeah, that's what the... I mean. It's used repeatedly through the yes, book. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just that that one was a very different mood to the next times it was used. Yes. Yeah, no, it's good. And it brings me joy. Good, I'm glad. What else brings you joy, Joanna? Fairy tales. Ah, yes, I thought so. <laughs> Am I going to cram an entire talking point in? No. Um, a, I love the reference to magical animals in fairy tales and how that differs across cultures. Mm. Um, which is something back when we were talking about uh, mischief. mischief. I've marked a couple of different pages for it, so not the bit with the magical animals, but it talks about the sly fox and in other cultures Mm -hmm. the fox is brave Mm -hmm. Um, and the owl being wise and maybe angry in other cultures, just as like examples. And it's something I noticed when I was researching um, the origins of the Puss in Boots myth, Mm. Uh, which was for a rabbit hole, and I found there's lots of different versions, but that's a different animal in different countries. So it's oh. a jackal in Indonesia. It's a monkey in some places. It was a monkey in the yeah. Philippines, I think. I remember you saying, yeah. Um, but then it also, I mentioned, it literally does a whole bit that was basically my talking point last week, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, when it, the last Hatful of Sky episode. Um. Discworld, although technically a world run on fairy tale rules, derives much of its power and success from the fact that they are consistently challenged and subverted, most like most often by um, the witch Granny Weatherwax, mm. who cynically uses them or defies them as she sees fit. Um, in a sense, she's always trying to saw off the branch she's sitting on. Yeah, <laughs> I think the reason I didn't get more annoyed at the the sciency bits is some of the stuff they say about stories is really beautiful. They talk about how we acquire language through stories, about how stories mould sort of our expectations of where we're going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the, with the Granny's bit, uh, I quite liked the and her stories derive their power from the fact that we've been programmed from an early age to believe in the monsters that she's battling. Mm. So yeah, that's the fact that Pratchett doesn't have to sit down and explain to us why this, that and the other is scary because he's building off of the the foothills of muscle shells of narrative structure. <laughs> Ooh, no, that didn't go well. I'm sorry. <laughs> what would you call uh, divination by muscle shell? Molluscomancy. Perfect. <laughs> Moolomancy. That rolls off the tongue a little better, doesn't it? I love Mulmancy with some really good fresh bread on the side. Mm, absolutely. But you really need to get up by the coast. <laughs> Don't. I've been craving Mulmariniere and it's really hard to get fresh mussels. I know it is. Such a first world problem. I know. Whenever I'm in Jersey, I try and get it. Anyway, yeah, divination. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, divination. Sorry, yeah, that wasn't complete non-sacrifice. Or it was, but it was for a reason. Uh, <laughs> so... The concise lexicon of the occult lists 93 methods of divination, uh, from aromancy, divination by the shapes of clouds, to xylomancy, divination by the shapes of twigs. Um, and indeed it does. I borrowed the book from the open library for an hour and had a little flick through those. Um, they were very interesting. However, I had one I could peruse a little more easily, which is my Oxford Dictionary of Superstitions. Ah. And it unsurprisingly has its own exhaustive or a certain extensive list of divinations, uh, including 
many, but one that I'll go into. Uh, salt herring as a form of divination. Right. Yep. Uh, <laughs> 1861 from C.C. Robinson's Dialect of Leeds. Take as many herrings as there are persons. Brackets, servants generally perform these feats in company. Throw them into the fire and roast them very dry and then eat them, skin, bones and all, and all go up backwards way to bed. And the man who is to be the sweetheart of anyone will bring the one water in her dreams. And there's right. a couple. Yeah, I know. But there's a couple of other uh, references from other books, similar time period, saying that, yeah, eating a roasted herring would bring you divination dreams, which I rather like. <laughs> I was told, and I don't know uh, how widespread this um, superstition is, that if you can peel all of the uh, peel off an apple in one go and then throw it over your shoulder, yeah, it'll show you the letter. initial. Yeah. And which, so everybody's so. future husband had a name beginning with us. Or spaghetti. <laughs> spaghetti ah. was that one. I shall be marrying Tangle. It very rarely looked like a letter. I thought you just threw spaghetti to make sure it was cooked. <laughs> <laughs> no, the apple peel looked like... We had to peel a lot of apples in one job, so we did this a lot. So it was an adult, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We didn't genuinely believe in it. No, we were curious. But it was quite funny. I'm just imagining a kitchen full of people throwing apple peels around. <laughs> Actually, I know you all. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Kids, don't throw apple peels. The least harmful thing you would have done. <laughs> Maybe don't throw knives either. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, actually, do you know what? While we're on Mansies. Yeah. Um, that sounds homophobic. <laughs> I don't know why, but it does. It does. I'm very sorry. <laughs> while we're on divination, I thought there's there's a lot of like dismissive stuff about astrology and that through the book, which I find funny because also. Um, but it just made me think of the the resurgence of astrology and like tarot as well on tiktok and how odd that is i don't find it odd i think it links back into that whole thing of um i know it's not just girls but and i know it's not just teenagers but i find a lot of it links back into that teenage witchy phase thing that i've talked about before i don't know man it seems a lot more widespread and annoying like there are people our age it's like the first question anyone's asked on tiktok as a thing like oh my god that's insane what no it's not even what's your sign anymore it's what's your big three what does that mean I, i don't care to find out no, I don't want to know. Um, it's been a thing in like a certain flavor of queer culture for a while as well. And by that, I mean like, I don't know, Twitter gays. That sounds really much more derisive than I mean. But lots of queer people talk about how like important astrology is to them. And again, I think with queer women, some of it comes from that just like, oh, I'm a lesbian. I might as well be a witch um, vibe. But there is also just a weird thing like when i was on dating apps if i ever spoke to someone who was female i would i would genuinely get asked like my sign it's got a hint of the phrenology around it that i don't like yeah <laughs> like i think it's fine to like be silly and look at your horoscope in a newspaper i think actually deciding like whether or not you're going to date someone based on the month they were born is kind of fucking weird <laughs> yeah also it's just i'm sorry it is just annoying and i know i know there's all there's this fucking pushback of oh it's just because teenage girls like and you don't start the no no come on you know i'm on team teenage girl generally for interesting weird feral crap but this in particular is it's too much now and i can't wait for the next weird occult trend 
that's yeah. fine. I'm just bored of this one. I think that's the problem. Can everybody start drawing magic circles and seeing what happens instead? Yeah, let's do much that. Much more fun. And I mean, give I... the salt industry a much needed boost. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously I agree with you on all of this, but that's just because I'm a Gemini. <laughs> uh, side note, we do enjoy writing really annoying horoscopes sometimes. Uh, like, yeah, we do. I think our, our, our favourite one for a while was trying to write one that people would just hate to have, not even just like the the weird occult kind of, oh, and you'll meet a horrible stranger, whatever, like the the, the flipping of the tropes. But we, we like just doing one that just called you dull in a really backhanded way. Yeah. I'll see if I can dig them out. <laughs> you will eat a yogurt for lunch and chat to your co-worker about it for 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, let's talk about the bigger stuff. Um, because we've gone wildly off track again. So to be completely on track, why 2K? Why 2K? <laughs> this is like genuinely a little bit of a special interest of mine. And it was largely came about, like I started being kind of obsessed with this because of a fucking Tumblr post, which was like, someone just said like, oh, how remember how we were all so scared the world was going to end in the millennium. And, and then it just didn't. And then someone commented with a really long explanation of, no, it didn't because we did a shit ton of work, dude. Wasn't there a you're wrong about episode about this? I think they. I don't know if they've done one. If they did, it was like I've, I've definitely listened to an in-depth podcast about this before. And you're right; it's interesting as fuck. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So the book very briefly explains it. So remember Y2K, the prophecy that planes would fall out of the sky soon after the year 2000 dawned, and your toaster wouldn't work. That prophecy cost the world several billion dollars in work to avert the problem. And it didn't happen. Was it a waste of time? Like, no, because people took precautions. And there's something I think is really interesting. A correct prediction, but the crisis was averted, is less impressive because it doesn't fit the story. Yeah. Like a more amusing story is that we were all worried for nothing. Yeah. So just a brief explanation of what the actual world-ending thing that was going to happen when the new millennium happened. And this is uh, summarised from a report to Congress in 1998. The potential problem known as the year 2000 problem is simple. In the 1960s, when large computers had little storage space, programmers saved computer memory by using two digits instead of four digits to represent the calendar year. So 1966 became 66. This method functions until computers confront the year 2000, which will appear as 00. So computers won't know if 00 means the year 1900 or the year 2000. If computers and microchips around the globe are unable to recognise this data, they could generate corrupted data, they could malfunction or even fully shut down. So for federal computers, because this was a report to the US Congress, um, this could affect social security and veterans benefit payments, even missile maintenance systems, aviation administration, hence the fear that planes could come out of the sky, Um, the IRS, there are at least 7,000 mission-critical computer systems in the executive branch of the federal government. And it is clear now that a lot of them simply won't be prepared for January 1st, 2000. Problems not just with software, but with embedded microchips. They serve as, uh, these chips serve as the brains of devices from elevators to security systems to automated manufacturing equipment. There might be as many as 25 billion microchips in use around the world. 7 billion were shipped across the globe just in 1997. And it's estimated that between 2 and 5% of all microchips have this date problem. And I really like this clarification. This sounds like a tiny fraction, but it is a tiny fraction of a huge number. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there were huge amounts of warnings. The US created the Y2K Readiness Act. Um, and it wasn't obviously just in the US. It was worldwide. There were task forces around the world. There was a global network of people working together. And this I love. There was a, I haven't written down the acronym. It's a really silly acronym, but it, there was a an international Y2K preparedness group mm-hmm. that came together to stop all the shit from going wrong. And a few things still did. I won't talk about the one UK specific one that they list on Wikipedia because it's depressing as fuck. A bunch of stuff still went wrong in the States, but nothing major happened. Planes didn't fall out of the sky. Um, buildings didn't collapse. Most things still kept running. There were some minor difficulties in engineering. I suppose that's the thing. The way it, those things were never going to happen was the thing, wasn't it? And that's also why it's so easy to paint it as overblown because you take the most preposterous exaggerations and therefore gloss over some of the really bad shit that could have happened yeah and some bad shit still did happen there was some fuck-ups with medical records that caused a lot of problems but the problem was because it was i don't think fear-mongered is the right word but because it was rightfully built up as it was built up as this is a problem that will need solving before this date Mm -hmm. And it ran away in the media into we're all going to die. And so then we got the Y2K scare. Yes. And that was taken advantage of by survivalist cults, doomsday preppers, people who panic about the end of the world. The perceived risks were used by a lot of, especially in America, fundamentalist Christians. I think the mega churches that tithe a lot, they started making a lot more money out of their followers. A couple were- of doomsday cults, quite a lot of the preppers as well went... Yeah, oh yeah. Like full. There were huge, huge increases yeah. in gun sales, surplus stores, which is where a lot of the like doomsday preppers and stuff get a lot of their supplies, sporting goods, like survivalists. Huge increases in sales across 1999. So the, the story ran away in two different directions. It ran away into, oh, it was so silly to be worried nothing happened. And it mm. ran away into, hey, the world's going to end. And how can we use this to take advantage of people? Hmm. Like, it's one thing to say, oh, God, it was so silly of the survivalists to go spend all that money at surplus stores. Gun sales had fucking world's ending Y2... Gun shops had Y2K world ending sales. So did the surplus stores. So did these sports outlets. Like, they took advantage of the panic. And I think it's really fascinating that this thing didn't go horribly wrong because hundreds and hundreds of people came and worked together. Like, again, you d- very rare is that kind of global coming together to fix a problem. Because it was going to be a global problem. I mean, it's been kind of repeated with the COVID thing, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, the obviously it still went pretty fucking. You know, a lot of bad shit happened, but the the international response and the willingness of most of people in the world to you know stay indoors for a bit, wear masks, whatever, yeah, made it so much better than it could have been. But from now on, I think. The, the narrative is going to become more and more. We hugely overreacted. Nothing happened. And I yeah. mean, it fucking did. And we forget a lot of that already. But it would because have been it a wasn't as bad if- as we said it could be because we did what we said we needed to. <laughs> yeah. So I think where this book is like looking at stories, I think the Y2K panic is just such a good example because mm-hmm. people constructed stories around it. So early in the book, they talk about this uh, like free will versus the inevitability of natural law stuff. We expect things to happen, prescribe natural law to it and call it truth that we've made out of a story, mm-hmm. which I think fits really neatly with your criticism of the book. They try too hard to make science into a story. Yeah. But I really like the example they use in that book, which is because the village fair is happening, we expect it to rain. And yeah. I think we've 
all gone into a bank holiday, like really hoping it's going to be nice and sunny, but oh, it's a bank holiday, yeah. so it's going to chuck it down. What was it? it, it paraphrasing, they said something like, uh, we expect the universe to kind of act with mild malevolence, but hope it will be nice. Yeah. <laughs> And whereas, I think that's... scientists expect it to be neutral. It's like, okay, guys, sure. <laughs> You're about the biases, of course. <laughs> and I think that's what happened with the Y2K thing. It was kind of thought of as this overwhelming universal potential malevolence as opposed to like, no, this is a real problem that can be fixed and we're going to fix it. Yeah, I think it was easy to run away in that direction with the story because, you know, 2000, this is the start of the real digital age, right? We've yeah. we're fine. We're realizing as a society, as a as a world, that this is a completely world world changing technology set of technologies. You know, yeah. Um, and a lot of obviously this is a bit different because it's grounded somewhat in reality. Yeah, but a lot of these kind of big like societal scares come from new technologies um, oh they they do and i think with the technology that built up before y2k it was very like boiling a frog like i don't think people had thought about mm. how much technology had become an essential part of day-to-day -day life until they faced that everything could go wrong at exactly the same time yeah and by technology like specifically we mean like microchip driven computing yeah. technology because yeah because um i don't know similar must have happened with the last generations of, yeah and, and uh, you know stiff we've talked before about the, the panics over clockwork steam power all that kind yeah, of stuff yeah yeah, yeah. it's, it's things always fun <laughs> i remember the millennium bug stuff specifically really clearly because my dad worked in it at the time mm -hmm. so obviously it was all over the news this millennium bug was coming and gonna destroy us all and i remember being like, daddy is the world gonna end at new year's um and he was like well, like no but i'm really busy at work right now and I really hope they don't call me in on New Year's Day because your mum said she'd drive to the party. <laughs> my my two memories of it are um, Harry Bow did a Millennium Bug special edition suite. Speaking of corporate, uh, <laughs> yep. I think our, our preparedness as a household was limited to like unplugging the computer like there was going to be a storm. Well, that's the thing. It was this weird like miscommunication <laughs> in media. So like... I think generally what people knew was that some bug was coming and your computer might, I don't know, turn into a chainsaw-wielding robot. Mm. Like, the actual problem wasn't very well... I, or, I don't, no, I I mean, don't to be remember clear, I feel like I'm throwing my mum under the bus here. She's pretty technologically savvy. I, I think she was just like, I don't want it like automatically updating or something. <laughs> I don't think your mum thought your computer was going to turn into a chainsaw-wielding robot. I just mean that, like, no, I don't... No, but yeah, yeah think the media was particularly <laughs> clear like to the no, layman no. about what the actual risk was no not at all and, and i think never that fucking created is, the panic <laughs> yeah agreed it is a very cool subject actually it is i like that you've taken that line and, and expanded on it because it's been ages since i thought about that that's cool it is and just quickly jumping back into a couple of things from the book mm. before we go into yours i do like the idea where they talk about humans and how they decide what is a story mm. um, like a literate human can look and decide whether like these words and letters put together make a story and we can't transfer that ability to a computer now we there's can something yeah this this is definitely written 20 years ago there's a few bits that i've just noted chat gpt next yeah. to a computer can do a billion sums and blink for keystroke and get them all right but it couldn't pretend to be a cowardly wizard if one walked up to it and thumped it on the memory cache that it can now 
I don't Actually, think it'll I be meant, good. I meant to do that before we started. <laughs> Are you going to try and like live make chat GPT roleplay rinse wind? <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Why not? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you have to edit this. It's fine. I'm already logged in. Please. I always say please and thank you. <laughs> please pretend to be Rincewind, the character from this world. If your laptop runs away. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bugger. It seems you stumble upon none other than Rincewind himself, the infamous and incredibly unlucky wizard from the disc world. Although I must admit I'm not the real Rincewind. <sighs> I'll do my best to channel his spirit. So what can I do for you? Or rather, what misadventure have you got me into this time? <laughs> I got it so bad at this. Okay. <laughs> Look out. Peril. <laughs> I'm bad at it too. Tell me something else while it's thinking. The other bit from the book that I thought tied interestingly into the YTK thing is when they talk about the um, humility in knowledge of the Renaissance period. It was critical about its own explanations. There was a willingness not to make assumptions. Just because we think we know this does not mean we definitely know everything. Yeah. And I think that taking that idea of knowledge into something like what you think you know about Y2K, we talk a lot about critical thinking. I haven't learned critical thinking entirely from podcasts, but like some of them have really helped. Michael Hobbs, I think, has been a very good influence on me. <laughs> and um, Sarah Marshall. Yeah. yeah. And basically, the You're Wrong About Extended Podcasting Universe. <laughs> which, like, the added content you're wrong about is is what it sounds, but it's really fascinating. It's a deeper dive into, like, stories you may mostly know from pop culture. I'd also recommend uh, Tim Harford's book. He does, like, uh, more or less on Radio 4 and the Cautionary Tales podcast. But oh, his cool. book, which name I've forgotten, but I'll link to it, talks a lot about when you're reading a new story, how does it make you feel? Latch on to that. Has it done that on purpose? Has this statistic been presented in a way to make you feel this or that way? All right, now look closer at it kind of thing. Yeah. That's quite interesting. That's cool. Yeah. That sounds really good. Yeah, okay. I think we should all be a bit more critical. Great. Uh, I've got a response from Rensmond. Yeah, uh, amazing. Peril, you say? Oh, that's just great. My life seems to attract peril like a magnet attracts iron filings. What form does this particular danger take? Is it a rampaging monster, a horde of angry wizards, or perhaps just a very determined librarian? Do enlighten me, or I'll know I must say I'm not particularly thrilled about it. But never mind, I suppose. If there's one thing I've learned, it's that when you're Rincewind, you just have to face these things head on. No, no. no. Or at no. least stumble and scream your way through them. So what's the plan? Or rather, what's the panic-inducing catastrophe that we need to escape from? Uh, it's tried, but it's done a bad job. So, okay, no. Computers can do it. They can't do it well yet. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, um, child, I, I don't know how to segue into your talking point, Francine. I'm sorry. Child magic. Quite all right, quite all right. Yeah, I thought the definition of the three types of magic was interesting. Mm -hmm. So magic means three things, says the book. All apparently quite different, meaning one is something to be wondered at. Ranges from card tricks to amoebas to the rings of Saturn. Meaning two is a verbal instruction is turning a verbal instruction, a spell into material action by occult or arcane means, uh, turning a person into a frog or vice versa, or a djinn building a castle for his master. The third meaning is the one we use, the technical magic of turning a light switch on and getting light without even having to say fiat lux. The third type of magic uh, they talk about in quite a lot of depth because it's like part of human development, they say. Um, mm -hmm. So 
parents and carers are always transmuting the child's expressed desires into actions and objects. So kid asks for food, kid gets food, way infinite wishes kind (laughs) of thing. Um, And then we kind of surround these simple verbal requests, they say, with magical rituals. So we've got the magic words, please and thank you. Um, And then you kind of build on that with things like Santa Claus being uh, magic and giving you presents if you could, that kind of stuff. Side note, there's another weird TikTok thing. The manifesting seems to have come back. Um, I think we could get rid of that trend if we show them all Noel Edmonds. That was literally the reason I stopped listening to that Scrubs podcast. They kept talking about like having a whiteboard and writing what you wanted on the whiteboard and that would make it happen. And I was like, dude, you're like fucking millionaires who are in one of the most successful sitcoms. Like, maybe, yeah. maybe it's not because you wrote it on a whiteboard that you're getting it. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, on the other hand, have we tried? <laughs> I don't have a whiteboard and nor do I have no. an elderly rich husband close to death who oh, didn't well, want to print up. So uh, no, maybe that's not going to work wrong. for us. Arsenal <laughs> Sorry, I've diverted but, us. No, you're fine. But I also quite liked the way um, they, they, although I'm not really, again, I'm not really sure they've got the distinction between the second and the third types of magic really separated out. But they talk about, anyway, our, our human idea, our, our developed idea of magic being things like coming home in the car and clicking the garage open, uh, clicking the infrared remote to open or lock the car. Um, Basically, remote controls, they seem to have a thing with. Uh, (laughs) This book really is 20 years old. Uh, Yeah, yeah. now I guess you'd say Bluetooth, whatever. Um, Which Wow, that would have sound outdated not that long ago. Bluetooth really made a comeback, didn't it? But they said, uh, unlike our Victorian forebears, we like to hide the machinery and pretend it's not there. And I think there is a certain joy and um, convincing, not really convincing yourself, but pretending to yourself you're doing little magic bits. Like automating stuff. I fucking love automating stuff, even if it's yeah. not very important. I just think it's fun. And yeah, it's hiding the machinery and whatever. Um, although I think there's maybe a little bit more of a, we like to see the machinery again sometimes now because it's, yeah. a, you know, it's, it's a fashion thing as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I did find a little jarring was in that same section, it was the child magic has been appropriated by more and more adults through technology and the legitimate kind, the wonder of nature magic has lost out, which was kind of a jarring value judgment Yeah, at the end of what I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, the word legitimate is doing heavy lifting now. Yeah, especially in a book full of like science. (laughs) It's like the wonder of what human beings can do surely can tie into the first yeah, like to be fair, I think I don't think. I mean, obviously, on a fucking deep spiritual level, whatever. The fact that I can keep listening to the same podcast on my headphones as I was in the car, uh, <laughs> like with barely a pause. Obviously, it's not quite the same as staring up into the Milky Way. But I do think it's like a, you get that little moment of wow, we did something cool. I wondered if you had any um, any favorite bits of child magic or indeed of, of nature magic. I just thought we could have a, a moment of joy of things we find a bit magical. I don't know. I find so many things a bit magical. Like every time I get a new phone, all I've got to do to set it up is hold it near the old one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always really like, I'm, I'm at both ends of the spectrum with like being one of those people who could automate your entire house. Like on the one hand, I love the idea of it. And it's so cool that you can just say things and lights mm-hmm. do stuff and music does stuff. And then at the same time, like, oh dear God, what's spying on me where? Yeah, I love the idea, but the reality we live in has stopped me from doing it because I don't want my home to be hooked up to Amazon 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't want a smart toaster. I want a really fucking stupid toaster. I don't want a toaster. Yeah. Also, I do live with the kind of person who would have gone and burned down the like the spinning jennies. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I think for honestly me, the point where I look at something and go, oh my God, it's fucking witchcraft is I make bread once a week. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's mostly. a lovely intersection of the nature and the tech. Exactly. And I mostly, I, I'm using a digital scale to make sourdough bread from the recipe for the starter I got off a blog. and I, But the main recipe for the bread just comes out of my brain. Yeah. And I just mix a bunch of gloop together and then there's bread the next day. That will never stop being magical to me. Yeah. And that's so many different types of magic, actually, isn't it? Because, yeah, you, yeah. you're using like the tech magic we've been talking about. But also there's the, the, the culture, the the fact that humankind has had this little bit of chemistry that we passed on for millennia. Yeah, and we figured out how to do it, and now it fucking works. Basically, anything with baking, like making pastry, and the layers of the puff pastry puff up yeah. because of all the butter you've rolled into it. Yeah, um, I made shoe pastry last weekend for a Patreon recipe, and like, you basically, you make a cheese sauce, and somehow you've got chocolate eclairs. <laughs> Is it that easy? <laughs> I'll finally try it. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie; it's basically like making a big roux and then putting some eggs in it. <laughs> Love that. Love that for us. <laughs> What about you? Uh, so the blue cheese one was the first one that sprung to mind for the technology side of things, I guess. Um, I'm still baffled and appalled and in awe of uh, the whole chrysalis thing, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Butterflies like... being melt, well, caterpillars melting themselves and then reconstituting as butterflies is a little unsettling in a very cool way. Yeah. I think that's one of the closest things to actual magic we've got. Although I do keep reading little bits of extra that I didn't know before, like the fact that there's tiny little fragments of each of the main organs. There is a bit more of a nucleus to kind of reconstitute around than I thought, but even so, what the fuck? Uh, like yeah, I, I try fucking, not to think about that. Yeah, you know, fucking birds being able to navigate via magnet. Uh, yeah. ma- fucking magnets, how do they work? <laughs> Ask Ponder. <laughs> Ask insane clown posse. <laughs> Do you know what? Everyone made fun of the fucking insane clown posse for having that in their lyric. I don't know how fucking magnets work. And I've read about it several times that I still couldn't tell you. I've read a lot about magnets. Couldn't tell you if you paid yeah. me. <laughs> so yeah, magnets. I respect that magnet. <laughs> Quickly on the butterfly thing, like I am the least superstitious. Yeah, And yeah, both of us salute magpies. So. Well, that's not superstition. That's good manners. <laughs> Oh my god, is saying please and thank you to chat GPT the new saluting magpie. <laughs> <laughs> I just transferred that instead. And other questions that you won't hear anywhere else, and you're probably grateful for it. <laughs> no, I'm like, I'm the least superstitious, most cynical, dead inside person that you could possibly know, unless I'm excited about bread. But uh when I went to the uh shops the other weekend for a few gardening bits, I spontaneously bought a gooseberry bush. And when I had it on the table and it was sunny and I was getting ready to plant the gooseberry bush, a tiny little blue butterfly came and flitted about the leaves of my gooseberry bush in the sun. And I thought, I'm going to take that as good omen. Yeah, absolutely. There's absolutely no reason to whatsoever. It was a spontaneous butterfly. Well, it could, you could say that uh, the butterfly showed some form of approval towards your plant, showing it must have been a non-cursed plant <laughs> again i don't think we can apply some scientific yeah. rigor <laughs> as far as I know, butterfly- that was another of the mancies <laughs> butterflies rarely make value judgments not never not never rarely. 
Really? <laughs> Did you know that alfetomancy is the art and practice of using divination to identify a guilty party by using a leaf of barley? Well, I didn't. I know that now. Yeah, that was another one from the. Uh, the are the you Occult just going to keep? Are you going to mancy us all the way to an obscure reference, Finial? No, that was the last one I had a screenshot of. I just forgot to read it out in its appropriate oh, okay. place. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's get a reference, Finial. Um, so, umpty. Umpty. The bursar of the Unseen University, the only wizard insane enough to understand imaginary numbers, would doubtless tell us that, that there is no question. It, uh, it being narrativium, I think, is the umpty umpth elephant. Uh, element, damn it. <laughs> is the umpty umpth element. Um, I just like elephants better. That's fair. I, d- I just want to talk about that. elephants are, yeah. of course, made up of elements. That's true. The element of elephant. Science, bitch. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. Umpty as a word. Yes. I was like, where'd that come from anyway? The first reference looked like they come from the early 1900s and they come from uh, Morse code. Oh. Um, it was originally Morse code slang for dash. Influenced by association with numerals such as 20, 30, etc. And now, obviously, it, it just means like a, an indetermined, undetermined yeah. number. Uh, often means either like a big number that you can't be bothered saying or like a number it doesn't really matter. You just say, oh, you yeah. know, umpty umps. Because <laughs> we had um, umpty ump in the, in the first Science of Discord book as well. Again, from we the did, lips didn't of the we? Yeah, I couldn't, um, I couldn't remember whether it was like a, in a starring role but there's a few ones in like uh, different languages as well which is quite cool oh cool um, so in french 36 and 36 thousands are occasionally used as a synonym for very many right um in thai roy paid maybe means both 108 and miscellaneous various plentiful so like in a lot of languages like a specific number the shorthand also for means it, which... like any old bollocks yes that's great. So does that mean umpty as like a slang term for any old number post-dates Humpty Dumpty? Because I always assumed it, like, because it rhymes. Maybe I think I it must like... be, yeah, because it's, it's, yeah, here it is, first attested in 1905 in the expression umpty seven, ah. implying that it's a mouthful of ten. Um, so yeah, um, ump, I think, may have been the verbalisation of a dash and then went oh, into okay. umpteen, umpty, yeah. Um, in Norwegian, Orten is used in a similar way. So that plays on the numbers Tretten, 13, Tuniten, 19, but often signifying a much larger number. So yeah, I don't know. It's really cool. There's a whole list of like indefinite and fictitious numbers uh, in Amazing. various languages, which I'll link to and you'll enjoy as well. You'll enjoy as well. I always say it like it's an order, but you know, it's just because I know you. You will enjoy it. There's also a list of humorous units of measurement. Um, which we don't have time to go into. <laughs> no, but I'm going to make all of those my drag names. So I think that's probably everything we should say about uh, part one of the science of Discord 2, the glob, the pagloib. <laughs> Refuse to say his actual title now. Uh, we will be back around this time next week with part two of the science of Discord 2, the globe, uh, which I said I wasn't going to say it, and then I said it, <laughs> which is going to start in chapter 17 and go all the way to the end. <sighs> i feel like you're going to enjoy the second half more i do as well actually yeah especially yeah. now i've kind of got it off my chest there so we go. i can just read it having said my piece now <laughs> <laughs> 
Until next time, dear listener, you can follow us on Instagram at the True Shall Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook at the True Shall Make You Fret. Join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF. Email us your thoughts, queries, castles, and snacks, the True Shall Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. Don't send us quails or qualos. Uh, if you want to support this nonsense financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the True Shall Make You Fret. We can exchange your hard earned pennies for all sorts of bonus shenanigans. And until next time, dear listener, don't let us detain you. A muck and sickle is a humorous alemanic German idiom used in Swabia to designate a non-specific, very small length or amount of something. It refers to a house plies scrotum. <laughs> so there's, there's a list I'll send you. Thank you, Germany. <laughs> Thank you, Germany.